The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. They weren't Minotaur at all. All monsters. They were just physically deformed in some way. They must have established a society where they lived amongst each other without fear of judgment from the outside world. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, December 8, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600, the number you can always call to reach us if you want to join in on the conversation. And you can always email us, of course, at feedback at justrightmedia.org. We read it all, folks. <laughs> Morning, Robert. How are you? Good, Bob. How are you? Not too bad, considering the nature of our subjects this week. <laughs> kind of almost segued from last week's show in a lot of ways, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, wasn't the direction I expected this week's show to go in, but I'm going to be talking about some destructive views of violence that exist out there, which takes us a little bit beyond the bullying issue that I discussed last week. But I also want to com continue talking on the bully issue as well, uh, considering the, the, you know, the feedback that has been going on over the past week since McGinty introduced his anti-bully legislation. And I understand you're going to be dealing with a couple of un interesting issues, one about punishment unfitting the crime, one that doesn't fit the crime, and is it correct for the law to be going by the letter of the law? And I think, how would I frame your first one? Here comes the judge, and the judge is you. <laughs> Judgment <laughs> or, Day? I don't know. We were actually okay. banding this about yeah. back and forth. There's so many puns you can come up with and cliches about judging and judgment. But that's what it's about. It's about passing judgment. Now, anybody, any long-time listener to this show know that that's exactly what Bob and I have been doing since day one is passing judgment. We have no fear about that. We continually pass moral judgment on the actions, the writings, and the sayings of others. And I don't shy away from such judgments, and I do not adhere, adhere to the biblical commandment, judge not that ye be not judged. Matthew 7 verse 1. Instead, I adhere to the objectivist principle, judge and be prepared to be judged. Well, gee, that sounds an awful lot like the other one. What is there really? It's a got the word there? judge in it. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, couldn't, no. couldn't the biblical one be interpreted that way? Actually, it's it's come to a lot. Uh, it's come to be interpreted in many ways, but the overall sense of judge not that ye be not judged is that do not pass judgment on others in case they pass judgment on you. It's almost uh, saying, avoid judging. Otherwise, you may be judged, when the exact opposite should be the moral principle. But the great fear is being judged, right? So that's what, that's what that's I think would really fear. stop people from judging others, because it might come back on them, it and that makes sense. It might come back to haunt them, yes. Sure. Yeah, well, if you're going to judge me, let me judge you. And believe me, you've got a lot to be uh, mm -hmm. accountable for. So the objectivist principle is judge and be prepared to be judged. In other words, a man of moral character will not hesitate in passing moral judgment because he is prepared to be judged himself. Now, this doesn't always mean... 
going out in public and pronouncing your judgments to the world. Oh, no. You'd be a That's... complete dick if you did that all the time. <laughs> Let's make that clear. <laughs> no, we just do it once a week on this show. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's not what they're saying. But they are saying that it is okay, and not, not just okay, it is imperative that we pass judgment. Necessary. It doesn't mean that you have to get on your soapbox and pontificate on, on, on morality. It could just simply be saying, I disagree. To say mm -hmm. I agree to something that is morally reprehensible is giving tacit approval to that action. You know, it's common in our society today to think that we're not worthy of passing judgment on others. And this has been drummed into us mm -hmm. from not only our Christian upbringing, for the most of us, which teaches us to be humble, as be destructive as that instruction is. Oh, because there's a single judge, God. Yes, right. Sense, right. But also from our secular public schools, which teach us moral relativism, or more precisely, moral agnosticism. That's a Randian term. The hypocrisy is, of course, for our priests and teachers to make the pronouncement that people should not judge. They are elevating themselves into a position of moral superiority. They're the judges. That's a good point. You know, it's hypocritical. Two weeks ago, I lambasted the Ontario public school system for their political indoctrination of children. Why did you ever? And I stand by my assessment, even more so in the last two weeks from what I've found out. And today, I'd like to actually honor at least one teacher in that system, in this very city, in fact, who has come out and revealed a personal observation about the effect of such indoctrination on his pupils. Dr. Stephen L. Anderson, a high school teacher in the Thames Valley District School Board here, a recent PhD in philosophy from the University of Western Ontario, from which this show is being broadcast, has published an article called Moments of Startling Clarity, Moral Education Programming in Ontario Today, in the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation publication, Education <coughs> Forum. And I'll put that link up on our site after the show, if anybody wants to find the article. It's actually a three-page article, but I'm going to be quoting just a little bit from it. Here is what Dr. Anderson had to say. Quote, I was teaching my senior philosophy class. we just finished a unit on metaphysics and we're about to get into ethics, the philosophy of how we make moral judgments. The school had just had several social justice type assemblies, multiculturalism, women's rights, anti-violence, and gay acceptance. So there was no shortage of reference points from which to begin. I need an attention getter, something to really spark interest, something to shock the students awake and make them commit to an ethical judgment. This would form a baseline from which they could begin to ask questions about the legitimacy of moral judgments of all kinds and then pursue various theories. I decided to open by simply saying, without comment, or by simply displaying, rather, without comment, the photo of Bibi Aisha. Aisha was an Afghani teenager who was forced into an abusive marriage with a Taliban fighter, who was abused, who abused her and kept her with his animals. When she attempted to flee, her family caught her, hacked off her nose and ears, and left her for dead in the mountains. After crawling to her grandfather's house, she was saved by a nearby American hospital. I felt quite sure that my students, seeing the suffering of this poor girl of their own age, would have a clear ethical reaction from which we could build toward more difficult cases. But I was not prepared for the reaction. I had expected strong aversion, 
But that's not what I got. Instead, they became confused. They seemed not to know what to think. They spoke timorously, afraid to make any moral judgment at all. They were unwilling to criticize any situation originating in a different culture. They said, quote, Well, we might not like it, but maybe over there it's okay, unquote. One student said, quote, I don't feel anything at all. I see lots of this kind of stuff, unquote. Another said, with no consciousness of self-contradiction, Quote, it's just wrong to judge other cultures. <laughs> Unquote. I hear this from adults. Of course. Daily. They're pontificating. They're making yeah, a moral okay. judgment that it's wrong to judge. Mm -hmm. The hypocrisy. This refusal to take a stand, to make a moral judgment on members of another society or on that society itself is the result of our years of indoctrinating children into the cult of multiculturalism, into the dead end, and I mean that quite literally, by the way, of moral relativism, or as Dr. Anderson goes on to describe, ethical paralytics. Great, great little mm -hmm. uh, moniker there. Moral judgments stem from a moral standard, an ultimate value, the survival of which determines our reasoning for judging something either good or evil. Normally, one would make moral judgments based on a standard or ultimate value. For today's educators and intellectuals, this standard is the group or the collective one belongs to. Such moral standards are, for example, race, gender, sexual preference, economic class, culture, and religion. If it's good for my race, my gender, sexual preference, etc., etc., then it must be good. If it's bad for my group, then it must be bad. But who is to determine what is best for the group? And what if I belong to several groups? What if, I was a, what if I was a Catholic, black, middle-class, bisexual woman? Who am I to take moral judgment for my group mosaic? Well, you could criticize yourself, judge yourself. <laughs> but you're not even a standard. I know. You don't even fit into it as an individual. That's the problem. Obviously, the answer paralyzes the person into making no moral judgments at all and resigns the person to relying on the expert's judgment on what is right and what is wrong. In fact, the only standard one should use to make a moral judgment is one's own life and its survival. What benefits the survival of one's own life is the good, and what is detrimental to one's own life is the evil. When your own life becomes the standard upon which to make your moral judgments, as it should, then you're standing on a firm ethical ground. In The Virtue of Selfishness, Ayn Rand responded to the question, how does one lead a rational life in an irrational society? Thusly. Quote, I will confine my answer to a single fundamental aspect of this question. I'll name only one principle, the opposite of the idea which is so prevalent today and which is responsible for the spread of evil in the world. That principle is, one must never fail to pronounce moral judgment. Nothing can corrupt and disintegrate a culture or a man's character as thoroughly as does the precept of moral agnosticism, the idea that one must never pass moral judgment on others, that one must be morally tolerant of anything, that the good consists of never distinguishing good from evil. It is their fear of this responsibility that prompts most people to adopt an attitude of indiscriminate moral neutrality. It is the fear best expressed in the precept, judge not that ye be not judged. But that precept, in fact, is an abdication of moral responsibility. It is a moral blank check one gives 
to others in exchange for a moral blank check one expects for oneself. So long as moral values are at stake, no moral neutrality is possible. To abstain from condemning a torturer it is, it is to become an accessory to the torture and murder of his victims, unquote. That's from Ayn Rand's The Virtue of Selfishness. Now, using one's own life as the standard upon which to make a moral judgment and accepting Rand's principle that one must never fail to pronounce moral judgment, the students in Dr. Anderson's class should have responded to his challenge by saying that the family of Bibi Aisha were committing an evil act, inciting with her evil husband by mutilating her and leaving her for dead. The staff of the American hospital acted morally in offering her aid and protecting her. They were the good. The students could have gone one step further, as I will now. Any culture which permits, encourages, or abets in any way the subjugation of a woman or the mutilation of someone as a punishment for escaping an abusive pig of a husband is inherently evil. To the extent that this is tolerated by the Afghani people is the extent to which they are all complicitly evil. There now. That wasn't so hard, was it? Not really. No, of course not. <laughs> it's, it's interesting what you say. I, got a, I have an editorial from the Free Press by John Kastner here. Speaks right to what you were just saying. And the headline reads, Murder over old traditions. Hard for us to understand. I don't know what's so hard to understand. And he writes, From time to time the values and principles that are part of this nation and those that arrive from other lands collide. Many Canadians are quick to point out that the morals and principles of this country form the basis of right and wrong. And it's not the first time worlds have collided with deadly consequences. And then he also uh, refers to some Sikhs and, of course, the, 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 the so-called, um, you know, killings. What are they called? Um, honor killings. Honor killings. So and he says, even the most understanding and open-minded Canadians find these deaths hard to imagine or understand. No, I don't. What I find hard to understand is why he would write an article that is so mamby-pamby about it. You know, how come he's having a hard time deciding what's right and wrong? He concludes that, well, you know, there's no place for this in Canada, but why? why what, what's all the wondering about? Why is there no place for this in Canada if it's hard to understand? Well, the answer I just expressed. <laughs> yes. His standard of moral authority or moral judgment is not his own life. It's obviously something else, perhaps the group he belongs to, perhaps Canadian That's identity, good, yeah. some nebulous object or thing which an expert has taken upon himself to be the moral authority on and he's passing off that moral uh, buck to somebody else. That's the problem. And I, I, just a note to any student of Dr. Anderson, I'd listen to that man. I don't know if I agree with everything he says, because I've only read this one article on him. However, he seems to have a, a clear idea of some of the problems that are wrong with um, the public mm -hmm. education system today and our inability to pass moral judgment. So we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're still going to stay with the topic of judgment and talk about excessive punishment, unfit for the crimes. We'll be back right after this. Let's have more talk, Data. Yes, sir. I need help, my friend. I cannot permit that boy or any member of this vessel to be sacrificed. The Prime Directive never intended that. The problem, sir, is there. Although they've learned of the Prime Directive from my mind, how will they evaluate it? How do they reason? What are their values? Remember their warning to us, sir. Exactly. How do I explain my refusing to obey their laws down there? 
not permitting the crusher boy to be executed. And by so doing, do I endanger this vessel and more than a thousand other lives? Would you choose one life over 1,000, sir? I refuse to let arithmetic decide questions like that. Having fulfilled my professional obligations regarding Commander Data... You now request permission to beam down to the planet. Permission granted. You can accompany me while I try and resolve this. And you should know that, whatever the cost, I will not allow them to execute your son. Thank you, sir. up here. Well, it's about time we gave it to him down here. I was just in his room and I found these letters from his school principal, Mr. Balding. Three of them. Obviously, he's been hiding them. I can't understand it. We've never given him any reason to be afraid of us. That's true, Lily. I tell you, I'm very concerned. I haven't been so shocked since the last time I sat in Grandpa's chair. What are we going to do? Well, I think we'll have to go right down to that school and find out what's going on. There's nothing better at a time like this than meeting face to face. Oh, Taggart, don't you think you're being a trifle too harsh on the boy? In my professional opinion, Eddie Munster should be expelled. I think you're going too far, Taggart. After all, this is a grammar school. You're not a prison guard anymore. If you'd use a few more of my methods, you'd have less trouble with some of your inmates. I mean, pupils. Okay. I don't care if your brother-in-law is a member of the Board of Education. I am running this school, not you. Now, there could be a perfectly good reason why the monsters haven't answered my letters. That's exactly what Dillinger's principal said. <laughs> We're back, and on the line we have caller Scott. Scott, you have a comment to make? Yeah, I just wanted to comment on what you uh, and Bob were talking about earlier uh, before the break. It seems that people are growing up, at least in our system these days, to not believe in anything. How are we going to know what's right and what's wrong if nobody stands up and clearly states what's right and what's wrong? You don't see those types of people anymore who stand up against what's wrong and with no fear of being ostracized or singled out by their community for standing up for what's right. And I just think that we need more people in society that, you know, will go against what's comfortable these days to stand up for what's right. I'd have to agree with you, uh, Scott, and uh, thanks for the comment. What you're asking, therefore, is some people of moral character to actually push the envelope back from the uh, abyss where these people who are um, moral relativists are taking us. You know what I think is part of the cause? I think there's a bit of a rebellion against the previous moral standards. 
for example, yes. the judge was God. And, and we learned that a lot of those things, either we don't believe in them anymore, or they were a false premise, or, or you know, the punishment was just, you know, wacko in terms of modern even justice principles. Would you say like this has been a pendulum swinging back it, and it, forth it, until we it, find way, our way? In a way, it might be. I think we might be rede redefining our morality in a way. The world is in a complete flux. Yes. And I think it happens in terms of on the, on the moral level, on the economic level, politically. And I think that's what the world's going through right now. I think a lot larger, even what we saw in the parks was sort of a reaction to, gee, we've been doing something wrong for a while because things aren't working out the way we thought. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when people start reassessing their values. They throw out the old ones and they don't know which ones yet to grasp onto. That's right. And I think you hit the nail on the head and that is a perfect segue into this next segment where I'm going to be talking about the excessive punishment that we give people for basically nonviolent crimes in society. Again, probably a pushback in one direction to try to get us back on some sort of, uh, quote, moral uh, compass, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's totally reprehensible. Um, I think everybody understands what I'm talking about there when I say that there's an increasing alarming trend in society today, that, and that is the practice of um, excessive punishment to fit a crime. Canadian government's omnibus bill has passed third reading in the House and has moved onto the Senate for its rubber stamp approval. One of the more disturbing elements of this bill is the provision for mandatory minimum sentences to be meted out to cannabis users and growers. Sentences which are no longer in some case, which are longer in some cases than those given to child rapists, if you can believe that. We've talked about that on the mm -hmm. previous show. I have a little bit more to say about this, but we actually have another caller on the line. Caller Ron, are you there? Yeah, I am. What do you have to say, Ron? Well, you had a call that are saying that oh, you, people don't know what's right and what's wrong unless you stand up for it. You, we all naturally know what's right and what's wrong when it comes to the behavior and treatment of others. We know what we like. We don't like to be hurt. We don't like to be harmed. We don't like to be disrespected. That should be what's ruling people instead of these archaic rules or laws that they put out in these so-called holy books that really uh, repress people, that really punish people for just being themselves and and being natural, and it's it's really, you have to get back to the morality that's built in all of us. We know what's right and what's wrong, and there's only the people with psychological problems that don't know what's right and what's wrong. They're ones that think only for themselves instead of thinking for other people. Those are the ones that harm people in society. Those are the ones that are, are really causing the most problems. So you're saying but that most of us, once we use our own personal life our own individual life as the standard upon which we base our moral judgments, then well, that becomes all, a common sense thing, doesn't it? Well, we all have a feeling within, within us what's right and what's wrong, what harms people, what hurts people, uh, you know, what helps them. Well, Ron, so, Ron how, how would you explain what's going on in the world then? Are you saying complete countries are insane, complete nations are are, are are that way? I don't know that there's anything that I would call natural knowledge. Knowledge is not natural. It it's, is. It's we, not instinctive. From when we were when we were tribes huddling in caves, we know what would help another person, what would draw them close to us. And therefore, we developed feelings like emotion from feelings of protection. Well, and, we, uh, yes, we act in our own self-interest, but that doesn't always tell right. us what's right and wrong. In fact, self-interest can be a great motivator for doing things wrong, as we read about in the newspapers day in and day out. But and that's people acting on their natural impulses. 
or, or psychologically harming another person, that really should bother you. If it doesn't bother you, then there's something wrong with you. Then you're, you're not showing any kind of compassion or feeling for another person. And when you start, when you stop feeling compassion or respect for other people, that's when you start harming them. We appreciate your comments, uh, Ron. Thanks very much. And Ron actually has a, has a good point there that while I disagree that knowledge is innate, knowledge is instinctive, I think it's rather common sense that a lot of people out there place their own interests first above others and use that as a moral compass. That's why there's such this uh, re um, repulsion to the, um, the the so-called do-gooders out there saying that we should do this, we mm. should do that, you know, against our better judgment, against our You know, he's, he's got it right about the whole bully thing, because I'm going to be talking about that later. Yeah. You know, but that comes down to not allowing self-defense again and a natural reaction to being attacked. That's right. You know? Yeah. Back to mandatory minimum sentence of uh, the omnibus, omnibus bill that's been brought in by the conservative government. I think it's that... Um, Mandatory minimum sentences have the effect of rendering a judge impotent in his furnishing a sentence fitting the crime and its circumstances. He's, an in, he's unable to judge now. That's right. Mm -hmm. You know, back to this judgment Or thing. that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now, with man mandatory minimums in place, a judge can basically pass judgment on whether or not a person is guilty or innocent. But that's about it. The punishment for many will be prescribed by law regardless of any mitigating circumstances which legislators cannot be privy to since they've determined that regardless of circumstance, a criminal must serve a certain amount of time for a certain crime. These mandatory minimums are a reaction to pass, what you, what you just talking about, mm -hmm. Bob, a, a reaction to pass lenient sentences handed out by liberal judges to hardened criminal, criminals, violent criminals. Um, that, and by the way, I agree that such a reaction is necessary for some of those particularly violent crimes. On that face of it alone, one could somewhat agree with the reaction, but it's only one face of the problem. The particular offenses our government has chosen to apply mandatory minimums to are nonviolent offenses, such as growing or possessing a plant called cannabis. As offensive as these, as these charges are to our criminal justice system, it, should, it could be much worse. Mark Emery, the Prince of, Prince of Pot, a Canadian citizen turned over by the Canadian government to a foreign power, the United States, for selling cannabis seeds by mail to Americans, a crime punishable by a fine in this country, is serving five years in an American prison for his actions. From his prison cell in the Azusa City Correctional Institution in, institution in Mississippi, Mark has posted to his blog several examples of outrageously excessive sentences given to some prison mates most of whom, like Mark, are in jail for non-violent drug-related offenses. Go through a couple of them because our time is short. Christopher Norman, sentenced to 21 years, 10 months for conspiracy to distribute um, 5 kilos of cocaine. First-time offender Jacob Escabel, 21 years, 3 months for possession with intent to distribute, to distribute methamphetamine. Travis Rogers, 21 years for conspiracy to distribute 500 plus grams of meth. Antonio Andrews, 48 years, convicted of being a felon in possession of firearms. The guns, by the way, were not used in any way, and no one was harmed. A violent, mm -hmm. a violentless crime, or nonviolent crime, rather, 48 years. It goes on. I've got a lot, Somebody a lot more Somebody doesn't here. like them. Yeah. Got a lot more here. They're just outrageously long sentences for people who didn't hurt anybody in their particular act. 
Merck concludes his blog post with this warning. In Canada, the cruel mandatory minimums for cannabis and drugs soon coming into law will be augmented by the ongoing appointment of conservative judges to the courts. This situation will produce much longer and harsher sentences, fill the jails, increase the debt, expand police powers, reduce the safety and freedom of the citizens, escalate the drug war, raise drug prices, increase the lucrative tr nature of the drug trade, and drain the taxpayers. All good points, I think, Mark. Another furly, uh, further... And that's the function of those laws. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they want. <laughs> You're at the bottom of the hour, but I do have just another couple of paragraphs to go on this particular point of excessive punishment. Shall I do it now, Bob, or you want me to continue after no, go the break? Ahead. Okay, we'll, we'll do it now. One particular chilling example came to mind just recently of a 12-year-old of a boy, Christian Fernandez of Jacksonville, Florida. This young boy, just into puberty, pushed his toddler brother, something that probably anybody with brother has, has done. You know, Unfortunately, mm -hmm. the two-and-a-half-year-old suffered a head injury, which was ignored by his mother, who had only reported the injury after several hours. The boy died two days later, but doctors claimed that he could have been saved had the mother acted quickly instead of taking time to download music on her computer while her toddler was dying. Now, while the tr mother is being tried for her negligence, what is tragic is that young Christian is being tried as an adult for murder. If he's found guilty, the mandatory sentence is life with no chance of parole for 75 years. Did I mention that Christian is only 12 years old? Mm. Unbelievable. My reaction to these sentences is in no way a, com a comment on the serious nature of some of the crimes, nor on the fact that some of these people deserve to be punished for their crimes. My reaction is strictly to the excessive and barbaric treatment that these individuals are experiencing. We often pass proper moral judgment on the behavior of the governments of uncivilized countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, or North Korea. The stonings, the beheadings, the public amputations and torture that so-called criminals receive in these countries are beyond the pale. But given the current trend in Canada and the United States to increase sentencing for nonviolent crimes, mandatory minimums, and putting a 12-year-old child in jail for life, we're not far behind these despotic countries, and we're catching up. And it just shows that we don't naturally know what's right and wrong. Not even our legislators do. They don't. Because if they did, they wouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, totally uncivilized. Yep. Got to go. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Captain Picard. Are you going to let them kill me? No. But I must find some way to prevent it that you understand. How can we let this happen, Leotor? They threaten everything we respect. Our law, our peace, our tranquility and order. You are powerful. But do not do this to us, we beg you. At least study what we were without law. Hurtful to each other, savage, thieving. I understand. Perhaps your system of law and punishment is better than any system we once had. But we do now have a law I must obey. And part of it says that I must protect my people from harm. Our laws have been violated. What of justice? What of justice to Wesley? Does he deserve to die? I'm truly sorry, Leator, but I must have justice for my people too. Transporter room. Energizer. Transporter room, come in. 
We can't energize the beam, sir. Everything checks out, but we're getting no results. God has prevented your escape. Then your God is unfair. My son had no warning that his act was criminal. We cannot allow ignorance of the law to become a defense. I don't know how to communicate this, or even if it is possible. But the question of justice has concerned me greatly of late. And I say to any creature who may be listening, there can be no justice so long as laws are absolute. Even life itself is an exercise in exceptions. When has justice ever been as simple as a rule book? Seems the Eater Lord agrees with you, number one. is I came up here to find out why you've suddenly turned against school. It's just that I can't go back there ever again on account of what happened today. Eddie, whatever the problem is, you can tell old dad. <laughs> well, today at recess, the kids made up a nickname for me, and they called me by it. They called you a nickname? Hm. What in the world could anyone think of to call you? <laughs> uh, it was awful, Dad. Wherever I went, some kid popped up and called me... Mm. Called you what? I can't say it. It's too awful to repeat. Even though my own father. Eddie, as your father, I demand to be told. What's the nickname? It's... It's Shorty. <laughs> Shorty? Yeah, and they made it for no good reason, except I'm the shortest boy in my class. <laughs> I see. <laughs> no good reason there, eh? <laughs> Except he's the shortest kid in the class. Poor Eddie Munster, last week we had him being physically bullied. This week we've got him being name-called, which of course is still really considered bullying. Should it be? Name-calling the same as physical force? I don't think so. I think that's what I'm trying to get at today. You know, much of what we call bullying, especially in last week's show, was really assault. It involves the use of physical force. Yet within the bully category, there seems to be no distinctions between words and deeds and often between right and wrong. And I think true bullying is about intimidation, usually usually in the form of verbal insults and only rarely followed up by threats of force. Those are the things we hear about a little more. And you often have the issue of small kids fighting and bullying each other and of course they can't be charged. And that's because they can't legally consent. They have no rights really that can be violated. So that leaves them in the care of someone else to have to deal with it. And that's when the problem gets in. So there's obviously a problem. Why did Premier Dalton McGinty introduce all this anti-bullying legislation? I think the main reason is because he's also legislating the conditions that contribute to the environment that encourage bullying. He's creating more differences and segregations, just like you were talking about earlier, Robert within the public school system, within the public school system, faith-based schools, race-based schools, Muslim prayer segregation, they're forcing the rights of gays to organize clubs in school systems that disagree with those activities, from you know race to faith to sexuality, quite an agenda he's got going there. And of course, he who calls a piper calls it, or he who pays the piper calls the tune. So, we know that the whole problem that, we, that we're dealing with originates with the concept of government-run and paid-for public schools. And were it not for this, I think the problem, as, we, as it exists now, just wouldn't, would, would vanish. 
Now, before I continue with my analysis of the bullying situation in our schools, I think it's time to take a little step back and take a broader look at how concepts of violence and force are being promoted in both our schools and our media. I've got a couple of interesting editorials I ran into that just, we see this kind of thinking all the time. Again, the old blame video games, right? Pong's violent offspring have pinged our brains, writes London Free Press editorial writer Andrea Demir on December the 1st. And she writes, this week, Pong, the world's first commercially successful video game, turned 39 years old. Atari has much to answer for. <laughs> Remember Atari games? They were great. I do. A scan of the most popular video game titles for Christmas 2011 reveals Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 3, Gears of War 3, Assassin's Creed Revelations, and Battlefield 3. Compile all the studies that prove violent video games produce aggressive and antisocial social children and lay them end to end, and they would reach the North Pole. Now, just to break in here, this is a complete exaggeration and misrepresentation because no such proof exists. And the author didn't cite any, by the way, so just let's make that clear, okay? And then she writes, moms and dads who buy and buy into violent video games ought to feel the same kind of parental guilt as those who strap their kids in the seatbelts, roll up the windows, and smoke all the way to the mall. Violent video games are plain harmful, and no amount of social normality is going to change that. What, what do you hear when you say, what, what, what do you hear when she says that? You know, I'm hearing her say, in other words, she's saying no amount of evidence contrary to her position will change her mind on that conclusion. It's dogmatic. Yes, the fact that no harm is observed, i.e., social normality, which she's admitting to, is no evidence that the games aren't harmful. It's the opposite. You know, I'm going, oh my goodness, just ignore everything going on around you. Even point to it. But I'm going to ignore it just because there is, just because there's no harm out there doesn't prove that there isn't. In other words, she's ignoring reality and yeah. truth and facts. Then she says, in addition to impacting behavior, violent gaming can mutate a child's brain. Using functional magnetic resonance imaging, an Indiana University School of Medicine study detected changes in brain regions of gamers associated with cognitive fun function and emotional control. The researchers believe long-term damage may occur after only one week of gaming. Although games are rated, it's ridiculous to suggest violent video games might be a more responsible choice for grown-ups than for children. The clue here is that their adult fan base is comprised, well, mostly of single men. Like Alec Baldwin. Wow. <laughs> when it comes to buying Christmas gifts for your kids this year, be healthy instead of cool. Think Monopoly, soccer balls, and books, end quote. Well, Robert, somebody's brain was sure pinged with that one. You know, that whole editorial smacks of totally anti-male bias, all the way through it. And, you know, given, remember, most of the so-called violent games are played by males. And she points that out, you know, single men and boys and the whole thing. It's true. Almost so sounds like somebody wants to change men while they're still boys. You know, one of that, that, that futile <laughs> relationship continues. As one subsequent letter writer to the free press later observed a bit tongue-in-cheek he said uh, you know monopoly encourages greed and of course if you haven't heard soccer balls were recently banned at a at a, at a school in toronto for yes. safety considerations yes. and books really you know i think it's in books that i've personally encountered the most violent and depraved descriptions of human behavior the bible is the worst well it could be one both in fiction and in historical record, and much of the violence was aimed at women, so why she would pick those things over the other. 
And consider the game of chess. Imagine what she might have thought about that, which we looked at two weeks ago with all its connotations of violence and strategy. That would have to be in the same category as video games, especially the more complex, longer game strategy and skill games. You know, as we illustrated, chess can be dangerously addictive. And this was an essential component of the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer that framed that whole issue for us, you know? Uh, you remember the opening segment that we used on that show from The Terminator, where the mother explains that all of the training her son received in preparing him for combat yes. and war, nothing was more effective than the chess. game of chess. Yeah. So I think if this writer wants to go after something, she should really go for outlawing the game of chess, because that might activate and stimulate and mutate our brains, you see. I think one thing sticks out like a sore thumb, that the writer seems to abhor thinking in anything that involves traits of male behavior, in a sense. I'm not saying this for nothing. With Monopoly, you're basically at the mercy of a dice throw, right? Reading a book is really a passive activity in a non-competitive sense, you know, as, as separate from the content of the book. In a soccer game, as we learned from the study cited, it only takes a week of gaming to mutate or damage a child's brain. Don't know if you want to do some gaming, even if it's soccer, right? So I guess watch out for that brain activity, because that can be harmful to your brain. You know, am I, am I starting, as, starting to sound as silly as what I'm criticizing? <laughs> you can just get that way. Here's another one that I thought was, oh, a breath of fresh air, and then I was disappointed. And it started, the headline to the letter the editor reads, Stop Blaming Men for All the Violence in the World. And this is by Kimberly Mockler on November 12th, and I'm thinking, ah, at last an enlightened opinion on the subject by a member of the fairer sex. But it was not to be. Here's what she writes. How superficial when four of the male leaders of London believe they can help to eradicate violence against women by spending a day at the spa, getting their toenails painted purple and donning feathers. One of those people was, I think, Joe Fontana, by the way. Mm -hmm. This campaign is flawed because it suggests that men are the sole perpetrators of violence. We must come to see that we are all capable of evil and stop blaming men for all that's wrong in the world. Pretty good so far, So right? far, so good. Yeah. The same day, the headline into the Today section is, quote, Hot Stuff, and features a story about a group of moms who have decided that they are hot and have chosen to be photographed lying naked together under white blankets. Another way to possibly curb some of the violence that occurs is to stop encouraging people to turn themselves into sexual objects. All mothers could start by being models of modesty and integrity for their children, end quote. So, it's a letter written by conservative. Well, has to be. Well, <laughs> perhaps she's blaming the victim, isn't she? Yeah. She she's saying, don't blame the men, blame the women who are arousing them, not to sexual activity, but to violence. Apparently, looking at sexy women makes you violent, Robert. Put him in a burka. Yeah, there you go. Problem so, solved. So, so this writer is explicitly saying that she believes that male sexual arousal is the cause of male violence against women, and I heard the same opinion expressed on the radio on other stations today over some of the other issues that are circulating in the news. That, you know, if the male's turned on, boy, he's dangerous. You've got to watch out for that. And, and yet, rape and those kinds of issues of control are not about sex. They're not about eroticism. They're not about any of that. They're about control and about force and violence. The fact that sex is a component of it is not make it a sexual act. And, you know, in her view, she thinks women, and especially married women, should deny their sexuality, hide it behind a veil of modesty. Oh, dear. You know, and this is a, an extraordinary anti-female viewpoint, although I don't honestly... Maybe it wasn't intended as such. I don't know. Maybe she was some kind of misguided attempt to defend men for being blamed for all violence. 
But it's these very attitudes being expressed by the activists and feminists that are the real potential fuel to the environment that would tolerate and promote more violence. Speaking of Megan Walker, <laughs> she was up in Ottawa this week, you know, to protest Harper's killing of, no, not of any women, but of the gun registry. You can always count on Megan to do the wrong thing there. And it was she, she was the one who started the whole embarrassing London Rippers debate. And to, to her and anyone else who believes that that's a politically incorrect name, come on, give your heads a shake. We talked about this a couple of shows back. And yesterday I re-listened to the conversation that I had with CJBK's Andy Utman on his show a couple of weeks ago. And it was over this issue of the Rippers. And I, and I said, do I understand it correctly that I'm supposed to think that the idea of naming a sports team after any violent historical figure would promote violence against women. Is that what I'm supposed to conclude? And Mr. Edmund says, yeah, you could include, conclude that, and that's part of the message that's being said. And I said, well, that's, that's, that's irrational. That's not a connection. And, and, I, and I discussed this a couple of weeks ago, too. But then when I listened to it yesterday, I heard something I never heard before, and he says, it's not that it will make you violent, says Andy. It's the people who have been subject to the abuse will be offended by the name. And with that revelation, I said, wow, we just went into the abyss of irrationality. You know, just because somebody feels a certain way doesn't mean they are entitled to be protected from their own feelings, from someone else. Emotion must also be subject to reason and to reality. Giving people emotional license to feel something at whim and holding others responsible for that feeling, that's, that's injustice in the extreme. And that's what the attempt of all this is being. Our, our governments are trying to create a sensitivity to words as a method of control. When people say they have been, quote, hurt by words, to the extent that's true, then whatever pain they've suffered is of their own making. You know, unless it's physical, of course. And when a government starts giving such people legal recourse against those who deem to have caused an unwanted feeling, that's completely political. That's total political manipulation paves the way for human rights commissions, more injustices in the name of fighting some sort of undefined hatred. It's a way of bullying, and it's a way of bullying someone not to express any judgments <laughs> about someone else's irrationality. Which, how, how amazing is that? I can't believe how what you were saying earlier just segued into what I was talking about, Robert. And which leads me back to bullying in schools and what can be done about it and what should not be done about it. And we'll be back on the other side of this next break. With a good one. Please, darling, eat. I'm eating. I'm eating. <laughs> I'm talking to Eddie. Oh. Herman. Yes, dear? I know you've had a talk with Eddie, but I don't think we should allow our child to be tormented in school any longer. I feel that we should complain to the teacher, the principal, and, if necessary, to the Board of Education. Why go through all this red tape when I can solve this problem with a plain old-fashioned spelling bee? Well, what's a plain old-fashioned spelling bee? Well, you see, I invite all the little boys and girls who call Eddie Shorty to a free party. And then, when they get here, I cast a spell over them and turn them into kangaroos. Gee, that sounds great, Grandpa. Will you do it? No, Grandpa will do no such thing. That's right, Grandpa. Now, I'm sure if there's one thing Eddie doesn't need, it's your broken-down magic. <laughs> Gee, Dad, how am I going to face the other kids in school tomorrow? They're still going to call me Shorty. Eddie, 
I'm sure it's strictly a psychological problem. And I'm sure that you can overcome it with the proper psychological attitude. In other words, plant both feet firmly on the ground and keep your chin up. I'll try, Pop. Do you know what a very wise man once said? What? He said, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never hurt me. That's because nobody ever called him Shorty. Why do I have to be short? Why can't I be big and tall like my hero? Eddie, I don't know who this hero is that you're talking about, but uh, take it from me. He's probably not worth looking up to at all. <laughs> Lots of so-called heroes are just conceited, vain, good-for-nothings as a rule. But, Dad, the hero I'm talking about is you. <laughs> oh. Well, Eddie, there are exceptions to every rule, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> another rule to be bent, eh, Robert? And another man of moral character <laughs> yes. to look up to. Uh, I was, Eddie Munster, you know, what got me Munster. thinking about this was actually that link that you sent me about a week or two ago. And it was... Uh, and included an essay called The Principal Anti-Bullying Activists Don't Get, posted oh, yes. on November 1st by Richard Bramwell, who apparently is a teacher. And he writes, little could do more harm, or little, little could do more, sorry, to increase the harm to victims of verbal bullying than does the recently televised Canadian public service announcement, Words Hurt, sponsored by Concerned Children's Advertisers. Now, I would have loved to play it, but it was mostly a visual thing. And the ad in question pictures three girls standing in a school hallway beside their lockers. As another girl approaches, the three begin to throw insults at her, like geek, loser, and blah, blah, blah. Quite right? literally. Yes. And the words are textualized and fly at the other girl, striking her down physically and leaving her on the floor helpless and sobbing, right? And I found the ad completely offensive and obscene. The first second I saw it, I said, this is evil. I just couldn't believe it was being said. And yet that's what's being taught in the schools too. Yep. And we, you and I ran into it way back in the 80s when we first started getting involved with the London School Board. And he writes, if children need to mentally feel the, shield themselves from slurs, insults, and gossip, words hurt tells them there is no shield. Indeed, Bullying Canada's What is Bullying webpage calls the idea of this shield myth number four. So they don't even believe in it, the sticks and stones rule. But that shield does exist and is found on the principle that lies behind these words. And, of course, that's sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt, hurt me. Its grade school wording is deceptive, writes Mr. Bramwell. One may think the principle is simplistic and of little influence. Not so. As a teacher, I have taught it to verbally bullied young teenagers, and I've seen tears of appreciation as understanding dawns on the victim. Often the bullying then died away. That shield is a principle that can save tens of thousands of children and adults from unnecessary stress, from damaged self-esteem, and even from suicide. What's behind the principle? We all know bullying starts with harsh words and tones of criticism towards the potential victim, the target. The bully is obviously not seeking friendly discussion. He wants to establish superiority. If the target shows shyness, fear, annoyance, or anger, the bully quickly senses that. He can influence his victim right where it hurts. He has established wordlessly a kind of control, a superiority. 
Worse, his target's response proves it. For bullying to really work, the target must unthinkingly accept the criticism as a meaningful personal attack. The victim's wordless response is, you know, Debbie thinks I'm a loser because I'm so out of fashion, or fat, slow, ugly, whatever. Whether it's based in truth or not, she has accepted her position as a victim. Even if the bully hits upon some small truth about his target, like being short, maybe, <laughs> that truth does not define the entire person. The bully, of course, counts on the target believing that it does. So, both believe, wordlessly and very personally, that what other people think and say matters. Matters more than facts and more than the entire character of the victim. Of course, we refer to this in philosophy as social metaphysics, don't we? That's right. And um, so he says, words hurt shows the consequence and offers no solution. He says, imagine if the bullied girl on the video knew that the words were nonsense. The flying words would never touch her and she would not be hurt. Walking away would be easy. Think about how easy that would be. And he says, bully words are nonsense that can only harm you with your permission. You know, I'm reminded when he said that of the comment that Tom Snyder made to Ayn Rand in his interview. We played it on the air. You remember yeah, he suggested to her, he, he says to her, he says, you know, a lot of people would think you're daft, right? Like you're out of your mind, right? And she looks at him and goes, she says, no, they don't. They want you to believe it. Right? <laughs> Brilliant I, comeback. That was, wow, what a com comeback. I, I learned so much from that one exchange, right? Yeah. And that's exactly what I think is happening in the whole bully situation. And he writes, parents and teachers must teach the grade school saying, the idea it depends upon and the principle. Of course, that's, you know, the whole thing about uh, um, teaching you not to worry about words. To help younger targets of bullying to understand, suggest they think of the bully as a dog on the other side of a fence barking his fool head off. The barking is a bit annoying, but all that barking is just meaningless noise. Nothing worth taking seriously. Really, it isn't. By early high school, students should be able to understand the principle itself, be able to explain it, and live by it. These stories show characters who withstand bullies using their own sensible judgment even if the bullying becomes threatening or violent, which is a greater problem than a legal issue, the child who understands the principle behind words can never hurt me knows the problem is not him. It is the bully. Um, and he says CCA may be hoping to arouse empathy to encourage support for victims and more direct action against bullying, but this is no way to do it, end quote. You know, I looked at the, that ad too, and I was, I was wondering, maybe they were thinking that it was aimed not at the at the bullied, but at the bullies. You think that ad might have been intended for that, to make the bullies feel guilty? Uh, to shame them? Yeah. Mean? If you were a bully and you saw that, how might you react to it? I was wondering about that. But ads like that, and the philosophy on which it's based, give all the power to the bully, right? And and give give power to otherwise powerless words. It's like drug prohibition, you know, gives all the power to drug dealers and criminals. Mm -hmm. So, too, word prohibition gives all the power to bullies and those who will continue to w use the words, yeah, right? That's a good analogy. It's, it always works that way. If officialdom were to say that you can't use the word geek, then you can bet the word geek will have increased in power exponentially as a word to, be, to, to use to offend. <laughs> that's how it works. When officialdom made a worthless weed, marijuana, illegal, its value and power increased exponentially. Yes. So the same principle works in reverse, most importantly. We must protect freedom of expression and not limit it. 
because that has, should be among the first concerns among anyone concerned with protecting the rights of individuals. And you know, hate, history demonstrates that where liberty and free speech are assured, hatred is minimized. It really is. And, you know, it comes back to even defending yourself. How do I know if, if you yell at me, can I yell back at you? Because now if words are banned, I'm going to be also zero tolerance and taken into the principal's office for even yelling back now. And I see that's where it's all going. The hate laws of this or any other country are not only dangerous and wrong, but generally a waste of effort because they create the very opposite consequence. So, yes, people should be punished for throwing sticks and stones, but not for throwing words, opinions, or ideas at people no matter how childish or inaccurate those ideas may seem. In both cases, physical and verbal, there may be winners and losers, but only in the latter are both way to uh, able to walk away from the fray physically untouched and unharmed. Words can never physically hurt you. And if that lesson gets through, then we've done our job for today. And we'll be gone for another week, and we hope that you'll join us again as we return for our journey in the right direction. See you next week. Got an interesting one for you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. <laughs> it's okay to have your feet firmly planted on the ground, but if you keep your chin up that high, you're a sucker for a left hook. Oh, sorry, Grandpa. Shh, so loud. I don't want your father to hear that I'm teaching you about boxing. Hmm. That man is so opposed to violence, if he found out, he'd kill me. <laughs>